All right, we are back. Looks like we're not going to be able to delve into the Iranian situation on uh, on today's program. We're going to have to defer that, but um, I promise you, we will talk about it. And I might want to pause a moment to say, it's such a pleasure to be able to go out, read about things, and analyze things, report on them on this program, and get feedback from you guys saying you like hearing what we do. This station and other stations like it are certainly not giving you the canned product that, uh, you know, is so commonly found in the American media. It's worth noting every once in a while that we really think that's a good thing. All right. Sometimes we feel starved for good news items, but here's one. Apparently the bear population in the U.S. has doubled since 1989 to about 350,000. That's as a result of conservation efforts and limited hunting. Of course, now there are 20,000 bear-human conflicts in suburban and rural areas every year, and some of them end poorly for the humans. But, you know, if you do see a bear, please don't treat it like, you know, like a Labrador retriever with a thick coat. They're wild animals, doggone it. All right, and some follow-up on what we talked about on last week's show, the British Chiropractic Association and deciding to sue science writer Simon Singh for his comments made about chiropractic. Chiropractor Richard Brown sounded off in New Scientist magazine, saying that many critics, including Edzard Ernst, hark back to the origins of chiropractic. This has the clear intention of suggesting that modern chiropractors cling to the 19th century idea that spinal misalignments are responsible for the majority of disease. While a tiny minority retain this view, most are aware that such claims have long since been debunked. Well, that sounds convincing, except I was looking at some, uh, some articles on chiropractic the other day and noted that, uh, well, in one of these fitness uh, newspapers that's uh, local, they were bragging about how chiropractic can help lower your blood pressure. And the fact is, there are chiropractors out there telling you they can treat your diabetes and asthma with spinal manipulation. And I think uh, Simon Singh calling this charlatanism was, is what got him into trouble, but uh, actually, I'm not sure. What, what word did he use, Mr. McMillan? Actually, we have to look up our, <laughs> our own segment on that. Anyway, Brown goes on to point out that Ernst and others claim that chiropractic lacks evidence and points to a paucity of randomized controlled trials, adding this overlooks the fact that many accepted medical interventions have little or no research evidence to support them. Boy, that, that's not exactly supporting evidence. <laughs> and an item that may mark uh, the end of, uh, of modern medicine as we know it, I was sent... A glossy brochure, being that I am a uh, practicing physician from Jefferson University Hospitals. Designation, the Myrna Brind Center of Integrative Medicine, advertising that a course in clinical homeopathy is now available for the 2009-2010 session. This involves eight, eight seminars of 17 hours each, totaling 136 hours. The idea of integrating homeopathy into your daily practice. I couldn't believe my eyes. I looked it up on their website, and apparently it's true. Most disturbing, the American Academy of Family Practice apparently is allowing you to get 104 hours of elective continuing medical education credits for attending these sessions. After reading Edzard Ernst and Simon Singh's book, I wonder why the brochure just didn't say, integrate hocus-pocus into your daily practice. After all, a lot of people believe this nonsense. 
I believe Ernst has a $10,000 standing offer to anyone who can demonstrate that any of these supposed cures, which run contrary to the <laughs> fundamental tenets of chemistry and physics, actually work. In spite of that rebuttal in New Scientist by, uh, by Mr. Brown, the chiropractor, uh, Ernst pointed out in an article defending his co-author, that a 2004 survey of the UK General Chiropractic Council revealed that most chiropractors believe they can treat asthma, 57%. Digestive disorders came in at 54%. Infant colic, 63%. Menstrual pains, 63%. Tension, headache, 97%. And migraine, 91%. Now, personally, I think they may have a shot at tension, headache, but as for the rest, well, I think one should be skeptical. Anyway, I'm, I'm very sorely tempted and may put a phone call into Jefferson University Hospital, see if I can find the person that's running their uh, CME program and ask them a few questions about this. Of course, not that, uh, not that uh, conventional medicine has completely clean hands on some of this uh, marketing stuff. Noted Sheldon Krimsky in an article for New Scientist. Across the Western world, the influence of pharmaceutical companies on the way their products are perceived is palpable. They pay for and design medical education, control direct-to-consumer marketing, fund research, help finance medical journals through advertising, influence how doctors prescribe, and fund speakers to help promote their drugs. Most, most folks won't be surprised to learn they also seek to shape what is published in journals through ghost-written essays signed by prestigious doctors or attempt to influence prescribers' opinions through widely distributed throwaways, which is a euphemism for journal articles that support their products. But noted Mr. Krimsky, even the most hardened cynics were left open-mouthed last month by the news that the Australian affiliate of the global drug giant Merck has signed up with publisher Excerpta Medica to produce a publication with the look and feel of a peer-reviewed journal, yet which contained only reprints of articles, most of them sympathetic toward... Merck products. And although the Aust Australasian Journal of Bone and Joint Medicine was sent to up to 20,000 doctors, the publication has no website and unlike normal journals, was not open to submissions. Neither was there any disclosure that it was funded and controlled by Merck. Several journal editors have testified that only a keen and experienced eye would have recognized that the journal was, in fact, a marketing aid. Okay, that's enough of that for now. Let's see if we can end this show on a high note. Well, let's quote from the Atlantic magazine. Pretty good uh, journal in its own right. Article in the July-August issue by Michael Hirshhorn on why The Economist is thriving while Time and Newsweek fade. Mr. Hirshhorn uh, in this article echoes many of the remarks we've made on this program, which means that the article must be uncannily accurate. But his point was that Time and Newsweek have decided to uh, become sort of commentary-type magazines and, and are not worried about the fact that they're going to purposely reduce their circulation. We've commented on this show that if you read The Economist, unlike Time and Newsweek, you're probably not going to find a whole lot of articles on rap stars. Probably no articles on John and Kate. Actually, I don't know who John and Kate are. I've just seen them on the splash pages here and there. I've gone out of my way to not learn who they are and why they're in the headlines, and, and, I, and I've succeeded so far. I recommend that you do the same. But the article noted that despite being positioned as a niche product, the Economist's circulation is nearing 800,000, and it will inevitably overtake Newsweek on that front soon enough. 
noting that unlike its rivals, The Economist has been unaffected by the explosion of digital media. If anything, the digital revolution has cemented its relevance. The Economist has become an arbiter of right-thinking opinion, which is generally free market right-center, if you want to be technical about it, with a dose of left-center social progressivism, at a time when arbiters in general are in ill favor. It calls itself a weekly newspaper that canvasses the globe with an assurance that no one else can match. Noted Hirshhorn, where else really can you actually keep up with Africa? Adding that at its worst, the magazine's writing can be shoddy, its research thin, and supporting some smug hypotheses. He went on to note that The Economist virtually never gets scoops and that the information it does contain is available elsewhere if you care to spend 20 hours Googling. I suppose the same might be said about this program. Of course, luckily, we have The Economist and The Week and NPR and a few others to rely upon. Anyway, in short, The Economist certainly does have its flaws, but its, it's attempt to be comprehensive in covering the world and, and to give you information that you need if you're curious about the world, is, uh, is commendable and hope they will continue to thrive and expand. And let's close the show with the sad news that apparently Sean Penn has dropped out of MGM's proposed new movie, The Three Stooges. Yes, the Oscar winner was apparently slated to play Larry Fine. But uh, somewhere along the way, apparently wisely got cold feet about the whole project. And no, we don't know who's supposed to play Moe, Curly, or Shemp, or whatever, and, and I, we probably should just not find out. However, I do want to add that my, f- my favorite item on YouTube was a version of the Curly Shuffle, which unfortunately I failed to download and somebody yanked, although I think recently it was put back on with some extra effects. So guys, if you haven't seen that, you, you might want to go check it out. And I say guys because I know there's not a woman out there that likes the Three Stooges which I will confess is probably why they're the superior sex. We're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. And on next week's show, we'll see if we can't uh, talk about William Wellman Sr., a character if there ever was one. We'll see you then. 